It's our 2017 legislative session wrap-up. The budget, roads, pre-K, cold beer. That plus winners and losers and more on Indiana Week in Review for the week ending April 28, 2017. Ice Miller is proud to support Indiana Week in Review. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. This week, Governor Eric Holcomb hailed what he calls the collaboration of the General Assembly's 2017 session as he secured nearly all of his legislative agenda. Governor Holcomb's legislative agenda was broken down into what he called the five pillars, including upgrading infrastructure, attacking the drug epidemic, and strengthening the workforce. Within those pillars were 28 individual legislative initiatives, and Holcomb secured all or part of 26 of them. Governor Holcomb praised the collaborative effort between his office and lawmakers. So now, without further ado, it's time for us all to pivot and execute. And I take great pride in signing both the new biennium budget and Indiana's first 20-year infrastructure plan into law. Holcomb's accomplishments include changing the state superintendent to an appointed position, money for direct flights and the regional cities initiative, and raising state police pay. The two items Holcomb didn't get, exempting all military pensions from the state income tax and incentivizing more venture capital investment. Was Governor Holcomb's first session a successful one? It's the first question for our Indiana Week in Review panel. Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Kyle Huffer, John Schwannis, the host of Indiana Lawmakers, and John Katzenberger, president of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. I'm Indiana Public Broadcasting State House reporter Brandon Smith. Ann Delaney, how did Holcomb do? Well, I, you know, if the motto of the administration is to dream small, he did very well. He got almost everything he asked for. The problem is, you know, when, when you've got supermajorities like he has, I would have liked to see some really bold action. I'd like to see a real fix for our roads, highways, and bridges, and infrastructure, and a real fix for preschool when everybody in the world agrees that preschool is the key to high school graduation, keeping out of trouble uh, as an adolescent, and earning more later on, and we're dribbling it in in such small increments that we're missing a whole generation. So yes, he did very well by setting the bar as low as he did. He did very well. I just would have liked to see some bold leadership, and it wasn't there. 26 out of 28, you can't argue with those numbers, but was he bold enough in his, in his legislative agenda? Well, I mean, we've got the largest infrastructure program in the history of the state of Indiana. I mean, I don't know how much bo more bold you can be taking on a tax increase for Republicans, which is something that is generally, you know, disdained and had the boldness to do that. So I, I think it was great. I know Ann likes to go back to education. I just like to remind folks, my, my memory's long. I know Ann's is as well. We've talked about youth education for a long time. I think it was Republicans that put in all day kindergarten, Republicans put in the primary or the, uh, the, the they thing also for turned down the 80 million dollars from the from the federal government to really implement preschool we've that now was got pre-k we've now expanded pre-k it'll continue but they've done it in a way that they've maintained the balanced budget which i think is another thing that we should be celebrating another consecutive balanced budget by republicans we always have to have consecutive balanced budgets that's no big where that two billion deficit go go uh, come from when we had mitch daniels come in i mean i don't i, don't, I, I, mean, I think that... mitch daniels pulled it out of whatever really? year it was yes we always have balanced budgets in the state, as a matter of fact, by the Constitution. 
John Schwannis, uh, was uh, a lot was made from legislative leaders talking about that relationship with Governor Holcomb, how collab- they said collaboration, he said collaboration. Is that how you get 26 out of 28? Uh, I think that may be part of it. I mean, you do hear these glowing comments. I mean, Senator David Long, Senate President President Pro Tem saying, I love that guy. I mean, it sounds like it's a Budweiser commercial or something. And, and, uh, and you do have... Just a relief from Mike Pence. I mean, I don't know. But you do have... Let's not forget I'll Scott t- Pilath and, and they, Tim yeah. Lennon. Solid thing. B. I mean, a solid B for right. the Democrat leadership. Right. No, I agree. I agree. Strong. And I think right. that was part of the, the uh, success story here because going in, it seems to me, the governor decided he was not going to use the bully pulpit as a club over their heads yeah. and say... Because traditionally we've seen... Again, both people from both parties go out, try to mobilize the public, get the public on their side. And I want you to call your legislators because they blah, blah, blah. That's not what was done here. This was very collegial. Um, he, he spelled out what he wanted to do. A lot of it was behind closed doors or behind the scenes negotiating. And I know Ann hates uh, sports uh, analogies, but when since you already set it up That's by saying 26 use. out of 28, we, we have stats, we've got to talk sports, right? What makes it especially impressive, it seems to me, is it saying the halftime or maybe even into the third quarter, Some I would have said it was not going to be very table. successful. Yeah. Look, the superintendent's position was not going to be a gubernatorial appointment at one point. It looked as if pre-K funding was not going to materialize in the manner he wanted. You go right down the line. So he really pulled it out. And if you get extra points for pulling, coming from behind victory, I think, then he certainly With qualifies. Some of, some, of what, some of what Holcomb talked about, too, here, though, is, is that in, his, in setting up his legislative agenda, he acknowledged that he had a very short campaign, that, that the timeline for rolling that out was a little different. If he comes up with, with a little more um, robust agenda, let's put it that way, in terms of stuff that the lawmakers may not be as willing to go along with, will this same strategy that he employed this session work in future sessions? That's really hard to speculate uh, and say. I will say that um, I would anticipate that he'll have a more robust, to use your term, a more robust agenda going forward. Um, And that's not to denigrate the accomplishment this term. And I think that uh, the reason why he has a chance to bring along leadership who might be reluctant to, say, raise taxes again for something else um, or to expand some program that they maybe have said that they haven't had an appetite for to this point is because he's laid that foundation in this session. Um, He has established a rapport. Uh, His staff has worked very hard with the legislature. They have done a lot of work that nobody sees uh, in establishing those relationships and communicating what's coming from the second floor. And they hear what's coming down to them from the third. So I think going forward, he's got an excellent chance to carry a a more ambitious program. Time now for viewer feedback. Each week we pose an unscientific online poll question in conjunction with our Ice Miller email and text alerts. This week's question, how would you rate Governor Eric Holcomb's performance in his first legislative session? A, next level, B, satisfactory, C, needs improvement, or D, F? Last week's question, is Congressman Luke Messer's introduction of a national voter ID bill a political stunt as he prepares for a possible Senate run? 85% say yes, it is. 15% say no. If you would like to take part in the poll, go to WFYI.org slash IWIR and look for the poll. Well, lawmakers doubled Indiana's preschool funding this session and expanded it to more counties. The $22 million plan expands Indiana's preschool pilot from its current five counties to 20. That's on par with proposals from House Republicans and Governor Holcomb, but significantly more than the Senate GOP initially wanted to spend. But the bill signed into law by Governor Holcomb also includes two controversial provisions— 
One gives families state funds for online preschool, $1 million a year from that $22 million total. And the other lets a private school preschooler get a voucher to attend elementary school there. Kyle Leffer, I want to talk about one of those controversial provisions, a million dollars a year for that online program. Is that a bit of a gamble? Well, I don't think anything's a gamble when you're going to put extra education in front of pre-kindergarten kids in the state. Um, this is a proven system that's come from another state. Utah's used it. We have a very diverse population here in Indiana, so this will be an opportunity for rural children who don't have necessarily access to pre-K to do it online and to still be able to get some early childhood education. How important is this to, that it really seems to be uh, driven towards the rural population and, and driving uh, the capacity out to places where it doesn't currently well, I, exist? I think it's important. I mean, assuming broadband is available to them to use this, which is a big assumption since we still don't put enough money in infrastructure, but, but I, I think it's good to provide that alternative because there are large areas in this state where preschool isn't readily available. So I, I think it's a good gamble if we, can, if we can put broadband and make it much more readily accessible to the rural areas of the state. And in that Utah program, or in the, in the program in Utah, that's yeah. exactly what you saw is the program was providing the broadband right. to those communities and to the parents who needed it. Uh, uh, John Schwannis mentioned it earlier, John Katzenberger, but um, earlier in the session it didn't look like doubling the pre-K funding was what was going to happen. And that came out in the last week of session, and all of a sudden the number was even higher than we'd seen it up to that point, even from Governor Holcomb and from the House Republicans. What do you make of that? Well, I was really surprised by the, the movement. I thought he might get some more, and he would get a few million dollars maybe. But not only did he get uh, twice the amount he had asked for, he got that extra provision for that program um, for the rural communities or for the um, at-home uh, pre-K. So I think that it shows that uh, they were either holding something in reserve, which is entirely possible, or more likely, uh, they got together and they decided that they wanted to do it, and they had a few extra bucks because of the revenue forecast, uh, which gave them a couple hundred million dollars over the more than they had anticipated over the course of the, um, the, the biennium. So I think that uh, this is where they decided to spend it, and they all came together at the end. Senate Republicans have, uh, some in the Senate Republican caucus have resisted expanding the program too much more because they say we've got to wait for the study of the existing program. We've got to make sure that this works and that the program we've set up specifically is working in the right way. But this expands it to, you know, it doubles it. It expands it to 50, uh, by 15 counties, so we're now 20 counties. We'll now be 20 counties around the state. Is this what we're going to see every two years now? A more expansion, more expansion, more expansion. When you say some senators, let's put a very important member of that caucus, uh, that's the sum caucus, and that would be Luke Kinley, of course, who is the Senate Appropriations Chair, who really said we already have uh, funding for uh, pre-K programs that go into these types of... Now, he was calculating it, obviously, in a different way and using a different measuring stick, but he said, oh, we already have $400 million-plus going into these programs. So... So it wasn't, that's why I think that argues against the notion of sandbagging, and uh, there were some philosophical differences, and you're right. Some people wanted to say, until we get this three-year study done and see what the results are, it's, it's silly. And there were also concerns, it'll be interesting to see how the, uh, the online component is received, because if it's supplemental and it's helping kids in rural areas who wouldn't get early exposure to academics, great. I think critics would argue, is this somehow seen as a a substitute for socialization and the sort of maturation that kids who have never, you know, been away from home or whatever in any kind of formal setting, that's part of the the pre-K process, too, is just 
uh, being forget about the children. forget about the X's yeah, and the O's and the ABCs. But you're what you're doing, you're doing that already with kids when you're homeschooling them. You're taking them out of that social context, and so the people that are doing that are going to continue doing it. You don't, you know, it's 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 a problem with socialization. But I think I think that this is it, it is good. It is important to make sure it's pro, pro, quality pre care. Right. I mean, there's no question about that, and that yeah. needs to be studied. But every single report that looks at quality pre care and the impact on these children later on in adulthood is positive. And that's why I say that dribbling it out incrementally is not the right approach. Lawmakers completed a temporary rewrite of the state's alcohol carryout laws this session to address a convenience store that found a legal workaround. Rickers acquired restaurant permits for two of its convenience stores. Those permits allow them to sell cold beer and hard liquor for carryout, which grocery and convenience stores have never been allowed to do. Approved legislation creates a new carryout permit requirement. At least 60% of a retailer's alcohol sales must be for on-site consumption. Almost all existing permit holders are grandfathered in, but Rickers is left out. They'll likely lose carryout privileges by next April. Lawmakers have pledged to review the state's entire alcohol law system. John Schwannis, Jay Rickers, says he's been singled out by the legislature. Is he right? I yeah. think to a certain degree. Uh, I mean, all, it, a certain degree. It was written. Hey, I don't mind. see world in the shades. You to me, Fifty Shades is not yeah, a movie. It's it's the it's public policy. There are a lot of shades to to issues. Yeah. But clearly, we we live in an era where the courts, uh, as we've seen at the federal level, have gone back and when they're interpreting statutes and their Im- impact, let's say dealing with immigration, and uh, they'll say what the intent was of the people who put this law in in place, and look at quoted materials and news right. accounts and so forth. There's no secret. If, they do, if that's the approach taken and if this were to result in litigation, I think it's a pretty clear, glowing, you know, fluorescent trail from Jay Rickers to this, this resolution, uh, this outcome of this session. So, so there's, no, there's no arguing he was, he was the cause. I mean, they've okay. stipulated as much. Yeah. The question is, you know, by taking the action they've done, and, and which will effectively, unless something dramatic changes, come next April, result in the removal of his license, um, that's when, when you get into the economic damage of the, the right. more than hurt feelings and what kind of repercussions there could be that way. So lawmakers have promised, well, we're going to study this. We will have to address it probably at least in part next session to address maybe Ricker's specific issue and that, well, we could always extend his license a little further if we don't get it done by next session. But... Ricker talked about uh, with reporters at the State House uh, uh, this past week. He talked about, well, I don't want to threaten law uh, litigation, but if I have to, that's my question: is does he file a lawsuit before the next session, or does he wait to see what the General Assembly does? Because they very clearly set the deadline at the end of the next session, so they understand that too. And it's whether or not he will go along and say, okay, let's see what they do, or if he'll decide, look, I've been wronged and file the lawsuit ahead of time and force their hands. And they may not be forced. I mean, they may decide, okay, you want to do it that way, then we'll play this way, and it could get really rough. Uh, So I think it's really, the next move is Jay Rickers. Does he decide to file a lawsuit? And if so, does he do it before the session uh, begins next year? Lawmakers have pledged a complete rewrite of 7.1, the alcohol code, that they said may take a couple years to get through something like what we saw with the criminal code. Do you think that's realistic? 
Oh, I think they'll play with it, yeah. I mean, the question is, when they rewrite the code, what do they do? I mean, is it whoever's the most successful lobbyist controls, whoever makes the most money controls, and where are the consumers left in this? You know, that's the question. I always find it ironic that Republicans rail against regulations. They're absolutely opposed to them. They want to repeal everything President Obama did, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, except in the area of alcohol and then controlling who can sell cars when. They're all for that. May have something to do with contributions, but that's just the cynic in me that suggests that. Was this the straw that broke, broke the camel's back? We've been hearing about changing the alcohol laws for decades. Is this, though, finally what, what makes it happen? I think it's too early to tell. I mean, I, I think it's going to get studied. Um, Ann knows, everyone knows that these laws have been on the books for a long time, prohibition era. Yeah. And so, you know, folks across the state of Indiana have made investments, right or wrong, based on that set of regulations. And so when the legislature starts to delve into it, it's not just as easy as saying which consumers are going to get, but you're picking winners and losers when you start playing with the long-term alcohol legislation that's been out there. And so, They've already done that. Yeah, so, it's, well, so it's, so it's yeah. hard to it's hard to step into that yeah. until and start changing that's things. True. And, and Kyle's right. It is hard to step into that. And you do have to respect the investment that liquor stores, for instance, have sure. made in those very expensive licenses. But the legislature really has brought this on itself by the changes that they've, you know, they've allowed grocery stores to sell liquor. Uh, they've allowed uh, drug stores to sell liquor. Um, there's been beer sales in other places. So the liquor stores have seen that as an infringement on their territory, and that's where you have the rub. So, you know, the legislature has made a lot of these changes in recent years. All right. The General Assembly this session couldn't agree on a bill stopping local communities from banning short-term rentals like Airbnb. The proposed legislation would have barred locals from banning short-term rentals while also imposing some rules, including limits on how long owners can rent out their homes. The arguments didn't really change all session. On one side were lawmakers like Republican Jerry Torr. He said the issue is about local control. And on the other side were legislators like Republican Dave Ober, who argued local control isn't an absolute. After failing once on the House floor early in session, the final measure died on the House floor in the final week, failing to secure the 51 votes necessary to go to the governor's desk. John Katzenberger, will lawmakers find a path forward on this issue next year? Well, this may be another one where they face some uh, litigation because um, you've got interesting forces at play in the home rule notion, which is always kind of amusing. Um, and so I think that we haven't heard the last of it, but what prompts it's going to be what happens, whether the legislature itself decides that it wants to take this on again or not, and whether or not um, somebody says, well, I ought to have that option, whether I want to regulate this or not at the local level. And then you have the people who own properties that want to rent them and maybe stop from doing that. So it could be a really interesting uh, legal question. The author of the bill, Matt Lehman, has talked about this is not the only issue like this, that the, the legislature is going to see more and more of these, whether it was Uber or this, this idea of the sharing economy. Um, does the, need, the legislature need to start grappling with a bigger philosophical issue here. Absolutely. And there are two uh, cross-currents here that, that, that uh, people talk about. We just talked about it you know, two minutes ago, the notion that we don't pick winners and losers uh, in the General Assembly. Uh, that's a fallacy, uh, and it has been for, you know, since, since 1816 yeah. <laughs> uh, in this state. And, and that's just the way it is. And so we either acknowledge it or don't pretend, though, that, that it doesn't happen. And the same thing then with this notion of home rule. You know, how often do we hear the best government is that which is closest to the people, unless we don't agree with whatever the policy that the local entity wants to put in place. So whether it's 
you know, a ban on on uh, a ban bags. on bans yes. uh, uh, of plastic bags, or whether it's dealing with um, affordable housing constraints, whether it's dealing with. Uh, we mentioned a moment ago Tesla, the way it's sold. Now, that's not a local issue, but there are plenty of other uh, local issues. So, there, I think that is exactly right. Um, you can't ignore the fact that there are these tensions, um, and it, it's probably never going to cut one way or the other. Right. You're never going to just cede everything to the locals, right. nor will you ever be able to say everything is fair game. It just Kyle, doesn't happen. Republicans talk a lot at the legislature about home rule, about, about making sure that the locals have the rights they need. But Dave Ober walked up to the floor and said home rule cannot be an absolute either, that there are situations where the legislature has to put its foot down. Is this one of those issues? Again, I, I think we're going to see how this plays out. I, I, from what I see, I think there's going to be a lot of conversations over the course of the summer to see where this, you know, it came up late. Um, and so I think people just weren't really ready to deal with it. We've seen it. Smoking's another one that started out at the local level, and then finally the state acted. So I think you also get a lot of confusion. If you don't have some consistency around the state, it gets a lot more difficult to do business. So I, I think that you'll see something eventually. i, I got to believe it'll be revisited. Somebody's going to file a bill. But I think it's too early to tell where it's going to end up. Well, minimum wage. You know, I mean, it's municipal. Yeah, well, yeah. The difference is it's not, it's not philosophical in the sense of policy. It's home rule is okay for Republican counties. It's not for Democratic counties. So when you want to ban the box or you want to annex property or you want to deal with discrimination on the local level, no, no, you're preempted by the state. You want to do something in Carmel, for example, on Airbnb, that's okay. So that's the philosophical difference. It has nothing to do with I'm anything sure else. I'm not sure it's that simple, but I mean... It, well, it, it, you look, look at what's happened. Every single time, home rule, whether it's guns or smoking or plastic or any of those other issues, ban the box. They've all been in Democratic counties, and they've all been usurped by the legislature. Well, we'll see if Carmel gets its power usurped next session. Well, it hasn't yet, has it? So taking all we've talked about today into account and all we've talked about all session... Panel, who are your winners and losers for the 2017 session? I will start with Kyle Huffer. Who's your winner for the 2017 session? Well, if I have to pick one, I'd pick Governor Holcomb, but I, I think that the leadership in the House and Senate are, are right there with him. I mean, I think all three worked very well together, came up with a strong agenda, and passed all of it. And Delaney, your winner for 2017. I'll go with veterans because they had the, the affordable housing. They had uh, their uh, uh, medical concerns addressed. It, it was a very good session for, dem for uh, veterans, and I think that's a good thing. John Ketzenberger. I think uh, Sunday beer drinkers because uh, I do think that this is finally the time when the, the alcohol code will get rewritten, and I'm sure that when it does, that Sunday beer sales will be allowed. Just beer? What about people who drink wine on Sunday? I'm not worried about them. <laughs> <laughs> John Schwartz, your winner for 2017. I know compromise has become a dirty word, but I actually am a fan of compromise. And we saw a General Assembly where you have adults, both sides of the aisle, both chambers, who, uh, and, the, and the differences, I should point out, weren't always between, you know, Republicans and Democrats, but there was a willingness to actually bargain in good faith and come up with pragmatic uh, solutions. And I think that's to be applauded. Who's your loser for the 2017 session? I don't know that there are any. I mean, I, I think that, you know, there people came through strong. Um, you know, the, the Democrats, even as I said earlier, gave, gave a strong, strong grade. I think that the feedback that they're putting out onto the street is that they had a good session. They enjoyed the interaction with the new governor. And so I, I think everyone left the session pretty strong. 
loser for the 2017 session? I think the losers for the 2017 session were the, were the children who are in traditional public schools because they've expanded vouchers yet again, and that's taking money away from the 94% of the students who go to traditional public schools and diverting it to the 6% with the voucher program. And I think ultimately that voucher program, which is the largest in, in the country, has gone too far, and it's taking money away from schools, particularly in rural areas where there are no other alternatives available. So I think they're the big losers. I'm going to say the people who write uh, screaming headlines because there really weren't <laughs> any uh, in this session, and surprisingly so. I mean, every year we hear, oh, we're going to keep all that tamped down, and that happened this year, and we were able to deal with other things. Do you think there's a correlation with Mike Pence being gone and that being tapped down? Well, that's an interesting observation, Ann. <laughs> if, if the uh, measuring stick is return on investment, I would say the coalitions that formed to enact a $1.50 initially uh, tax, cigarette tax, for health purposes, and then the folks who spent a couple years trying to promote and put together a plan for redistricting. Again, if you look at how much money had been spent in these areas and how much blood, sweat, and tears had been expended, they got nothing to show. Finally, Governor Holcomb's desk phone started ringing in the middle of his session wrap-up press conference this week. He jokingly wondered who was calling and noted it couldn't be his wife since she had a speaking engagement at the same time. So, Kyle Huffer, who was calling Governor Holcomb? Well, originally I thought it was Scott Pelath and Tim Lannon calling to tell him how good he did again and how great the budget was, even though they didn't vote for it. I mean, I think that was their message to Luke Kinley. It was a great budget, but they couldn't vote for That's it. That's true. So. Karen Tallion said that on the floor. Yeah. And who called Governor Holcomb? I really wouldn't want to speculate. <laughs> That's a first. John Katzenberger, who called Governor Holcomb? Um, hmm. Ghostbusters? Uh, and John Schwannis? I guess he's not on the you, no call list. I guess. Yeah, I guess not. Do you know the answer to this question? I think it was Jay Ricker looking for a veto. Oh, That's wow. Indiana Week in Review for this week. Our panel is Ann Delaney, Democrat, Republican Kyle Huffer, John Schwannis of Indiana Lawmakers, and John Ketzenberger of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. If you'd like a podcast of this program, you can find it at wfyi.org slash iwir, or starting Monday, you can stream it or get it on demand from Xfinity. I'm Brandon Smith of Indiana Public Broadcasting. Join us next time, because a lot can happen in an Indiana week. Ice Miller is proud to support Indiana Week in Review. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com.